0: Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. This episode, we're talking about
1: Houses Under the Sea by Caitlin R. Kiernan. This story was originally published in 2006 in the Mammoth Book of Best New Horror, Volume
0: 18. This is a novella. It's a very big story. So as is our custom, we're going to devote two episodes to this one. And this episode's going to be the recap. And then next time we'll have the discussion episode. We also want to take a moment here at the top of the show to say thanks to everyone who participated in our review drive. That was Really awesome. We were really excited to give out these prizes. Though I will say that as we're recording this, we don't yet know what the big winner is going to choose as a special bonus episode. But I'm really looking forward to finding out. As am I. I also want to echo the thanks you just gave,
1: Glenn. These reviews keep us on the air. They keep us on top of search engines and uh, people's minds. Also, if you listen to our show, if you like what we're doing here, please consider reviewing us on iTunes or the platform that you listen to us on. It really helps us out. We really appreciate all the participation on either Patreon or the reviews that help us keep this project alive.
0: And well, the, the contest, the, the drawing of names out of a metaphorical internet hat part of the contest is over, we did have this other goal. the If we get to 100 reviews on any of our shows, we would do uh, another special bonus episode. We didn't reach that on any of our shows. We didn't reach that here on Elder Sign. And that's kind of a shame, right? Because we had already decided what we were going to do, which is that when we got to 100 reviews, or if we'd gotten to 100 reviews, we were going to do H.P. Lovecraft's Magnum Opus, The Call of Cthulhu. And- we've decided to keep that the goal. That is when we will do The Call of Cthulhu. So even though the contest itself is over, if you didn't write reviews for Elder Sign, if you do now, you'll still be contributing to that as a bonus episode. And that's something, of course, that I think all of us are really excited about. And speaking of The Call of Cthulhu, we're going to be thinking about The Call of Cthulhu as we cover this story, Houses Under the Sea. We're going to be thinking a lot about H.P. Lovecraft's nautical weird fiction, Call of Cthulhu, Shadow Over Innsmouth, Dagon. All of that is present here in this story, Houses Under the Sea. And I loved this one.
1: I loved this story, too. And we will be talking about H.P. Lovecraft Uh, Really, more largely weird fiction. Uh, Once we finish talking about the story, going through the recap, I have to say this might be my favorite story that we've covered so far on Elder Sign. Uh, There are others that are contenders for it, but this is way up there. This story blew me away. The writing, the craft, the style, the content, the blending of genres. Uh, I'm just in awe of Caitlin Kiernan's talent.
0: I cannot wait. To share this story with our audience. Well, let's get into it right away then. I mean, this is a gorgeously written lyrical story. It is the first person account of a journalist who's trying to write a story about something that happened to his lover, something horrifying that he doesn't really want to face. And that reluctance to narrate is a great storytelling device because it means that Kiernan can wait until almost the last page to reveal to us the central weird element that is at the core of the story. And that keeps us, the readers, turning the pages, just yearning to find out what the thing that happened actually is. But what it also means is that we could recap the story in a more straightforward manner than Kiernan tells it. But I think that doing that would rob the story of really. The joy of reading it it also doesn't help us appreciate the craft with which Kiernan has constructed this, and you know that is one of our primary interests on Elder sign is looking at the craft of these stories, how writers have crafted their pieces here. And it's also a primary interest of so many of our listeners as well. So we definitely want to retain that. We're going to do our best to maintain the the pace and the structure of the story, the way that Kiernan has written it. We're going to tease out the information very slowly, even though it's harder to do it that way and puts a lot more burden on us to to narrate it the same way that Kiernan has. But fortunately, on the other hand, this novella is divided into 8 chapters. So, at the very least, that's going to help us have some discrete chunks of story to work with. So, we'll do those one at a time. We'll we'll pause to chat about each of them as we go.
1: This is one of the few stories that we've covered on Elder Sign where I recommend if you haven't read it, you're listening to the show, you like the way we do the book club style podcast, you should read this story before listening to it because, yes, we are going to do our best to maintain the pace and structure of the story, but I'm going to slow us down a lot, I think, in this <laughs> episode with, our, with, with the commentary. And uh, that's because this story is densely packed with uh, you know strange illusions and all sorts of wonderful literary flair and technique, uh, and I just want to savor it. But I, I also just want to say I am... So glad, in case anybody can 't tell that we 've been reading Caitlyn Kiernan for this show. I am always so refreshed by reading her and her style. I love the way she roots her stories in the you know weird or horror genre, but her style is so exciting um, but you 're also right to point out, Glenn, as you did just a moment ago, this device of the reluctant narrator. It works especially well for this story. It's not just a device for the sake of storytelling. The narrator, we'll learn, is compelled to write this story because he's supposed to be making money as a journalist. Uh, And the conflict between his natural ability, his talent, his ethics, and his economic need are core to the story, but they're also hallmarks of hard-boiled fiction, uh, which is a sensibility the story is also cut up with. Uh, this is
0: a great story. So please pause the show, read the story, rejoin us when you've finished. Caitlin Kiernan is one of these authors that we've encountered here on Elder Sign, who I really wish that there were enough hours in the day, enough hours in my life to start yet another podcast, a podcast dedicated only to Caitlin R. Kiernan. I mean, we've been reading these stories out of her relatively recent collection, The Very Best of Caitlin R. Kiernan, which is a distillation of the two-volume, The Best of Caitlin Kiernan. And just looking at the front flap of this book, I mean, the number of books that she has, it's like a dozen novels, a dozen short story collections. Uh, that's enough to fill up, a, a, you know, a decade's worth of of podcasting. We're never going to get to all of that here on on this show because, you know, breadth rather than depth is really the the organizing scheme here for us. And it's a shame. I really want to read a lot more of her and read her as closely as we get to do for the show, but we can dream. But <laughs> let's, uh, let's get started on this. So let's dig into chapter one here. When I close my eyes, I see Jacoba Angevine. I close my eyes and there she is, standing alone at the end of the breakwater, standing with the foghorn as the choppy sea shatters itself to foam against a jumble of gray boulders. The October wind is making something wild of her hair, and her back's turned to me. The boats are coming in. That's how the story opens, with the the closing of eyes and a memory. And that is how the first chapter is going to function, as our narrator remembers Jacoba Angevine, whose story this is. And our story takes place in Monterey, California, the setting of Steinbeck's novel Cannery Row and also the home of the Defense Language Institute School, which I think matters to, to us, <laughs> to you and me, Brandon, and also <laughs> a lot of our, our comrades, of course. Our, our narrator remembers dates with Jacova, walking near the bay, talking about the town. He also remembers her at the Pierce Street Warehouse. Men and women in white robes listening to her. Their many eyes, like the bulging eyes of deep sea fish encountering sunlight for the first time. It's a great, really wonderful simile there. And then the narrator writes, all of them lost. I close my eyes and she's leading them into the bay. Those creatures jumped the barricades and have headed for the sea. And this is the hook, right? This is the weird thing that we want to know about, that we want explained to us. People in white robes, then lost. And what does it mean by creatures, right? Brilliant hook there. And he does tell us as well that Jakova Angevine has earned her spot in the Death Cult Hall of Fame. He compares her to the Heaven's Gate cult. And so we get the impression that she led these people into a mass suicide of some sort. And as the narrator takes us through his shifting patchwork of memories, uh, we get some scenes of Jakova preaching. Here's what she says. In the mansions of Poseidon, she will prepare halls from coral and glass and the bones of whales. Down there, you will know nothing but peace in her mansions, in the endless night of her coils. And who is her, we have to wonder. And Jacoba tells the narrator on the night they first had sex that when she is gone, when she's done here, They will ask him questions about her. And on this same night, seeing her naked body for the first time, he sees scars on her back, puckered, circular scars, two dozen of them, symmetrical, running down the length of her back.
1: Right. I immediately am wondering, is this like angel wings that were cut from her or are these scars from an octopus or something like that? There's a lot of questions just from this opening. And I love the opening of this story. I love the way that it operates like a slideshow of memories. It's this blinking, and then a paragraph that starts with "and then I'm there, and then we're there." It's gorgeous. It's wonderful. And what's key here is that the narrator is unable to escape these small moments that he's had with J- Jakova and Javeen, and Jakova is a. Jacoba is a name that is also related to the name Jacob. Angevine means, you know, from the town of Anjou in France. Uh, we're going to see her father's name is Theo. I don't know if those names are significant. <laughs> we can talk about that uh, <laughs> later. I- I'm really not sure, or if it's just the name that a person named Theo named his daughter because he thought it would be cool. And it adds a reality effect to the story. But the narrator doesn't necessarily want to think about Jakova at all. It's become his job to do so. And he's got to dig through these moments in order to free his memory and approach the core trauma of his relationship with her. But he needs to unroot the trauma, the, the, the visual of her leading people into the sea to drown. And his labor in this story, his labor as he's writing, is going to be to square his memories of her as a normal woman with desires, uh, with motivations, with wants, a person who's been an academic. We'll learn more about her as the story goes on, with the extraordinary charisma and beliefs that were responsible for leading a cult and leading people to their deaths. Incidentally, there are a lot of details in the section that indicate Jacoba's concern about the destruction of marine life and also the study of marine life, she mentions the fire from the Associated Oil Company, where a large storage drum full of oil was struck by lightning, and it lit a fire that rolled down into the sea, and the sea was on fire with this oil. It was a big oil spill, a 55,000-gallon drum. And then she mentions the Del Mar Cannon Company fire, which did halt canning operations there for a little while, but perhaps more importantly, it completely destroyed the next door building, which was a place called the Pacific Biological Laboratories. And this was a place that Steinbeck saved financially, though not for long. A lot of important specimens and studies of marine life were destroyed in this fire. And Jacoba's concerned about these things, I think, to the degree to which commerce and industry are destroying marine life. And that the major issue of her thinking about these fires, talking about the history of Cannery Row, and that the major issue for a lot of people, the stuff that got all the press about this oil fire and about the destruction of this canning, of this cannery warehouse was that these companies and industries are losing money, not that marine life is being destroyed. So at this point, kind of thinking about these issues as, as the narrator brings them up, as Dagova has brought them up, I'm wondering if this death call isn't a form of protest or martyrdom at this point in the story. But I'm, I'm not sure if that's the case,
0: because I think that kind of story would take a different form. This is definitely something I'm looking forward to taking up in the discussion because there's this weird thing that Kiernan does all throughout the story that that I'm not intending to really do as I'm I'm taking us through the the recap, where she points out brand names and the names of companies at every opportunity, any, any time that she could say something like uh, canning factory or cannery warehouse or oil warehouse or whatever she could say, or, or soda bottles. She doesn't. She is hyper specific. She says the name of the company every single time. And I'm not quite sure what she's doing with that because it's just there in the background. I didn't even really notice it or, or, or at least notice it as a recurring motif until my second reading of this story even. So I'm looking forward to trying to work out with you what she's doing here, yeah we 'll definitely be taking that and other elements of this story
1: that don 't seem to have to do with the core narrative um, and i 'm excited to talk about that as well because it's it 's great in terms of style, but what is it doing in this story? You also mentioned this bit where she 's leading her death call into the bay, and the narrator is thinking about that moment he 's thinking about how he witnessed that you know on the news or whatever. And then in italics, you read this, but it's in italics in the text, we get the phrases, those creatures jumped the barricades and have headed for the sea. And there are a few other italic moments in this chapter. Another one is, what is that noise now? What is the wind doing? And the sea has many voices, many gods and many voices. Uh, There are other points in the story where we get these allusions. And these are all allusions to either songs or poems. And in a moment, I'll let you know where they come from. But first, <laughs> I want to point out that these illusions, these things the narrator thinks of that are intertwined with his memory, indicate to me that he is deeply moored in this situation with Jakova and the sea. And maybe situation isn't the right word. Maybe it's trauma. And these things jump into his mind, or as we'll see later, jump out of books or whatever they're all related to this event. They're all entangled. And this just feels so psychologically true to me. I love it. I think it is such a good technique of writing that Kiernan is caught up with uh, by, by having these interruptions of the flow of narrative with kind of random mental flotsam floating around in the narrator's head that all connect to the sea or the situation somehow.
0: We didn't see her do this in the Ammonite Violin, but since we've done that and in between doing this over on ATOS, I have done her novel or a really long novella, The Dry Salvages, the title of which itself actually comes from a T.S. Eliot poem. Uh, but all throughout that story, she's using one particular Beatles song. She has, her, she has the narrator, the first person narrator of that story thinking about uh, throughout the entire story. And the way that Kiernan weaves it in there uh, is, is really quite brilliant because I think we do this in our daily lives, right? So Songs that we get stuck in our, our head, songs maybe sometimes we haven't heard in years or decades, but that we still know by heart nonetheless influence the way that we are perceiving the world or the way that we articulate what we're perceiving in our own inner monologues. I thought it was really cool when I encountered it there. She has dialed that up to 11 here in this story. And then there's some Beatles stuff in this story as well. Oh, yeah, there is. And that's at the very end of the story. Yeah.
1: Uh, the the illusions <laughs> we get here are uh, from you know, you mentioned the first one, those creatures jumped from the barricades and have headed for the sea. That's from a song called Belong by REM. That's off their 1991 album, Out of Time. Uh, the full context of the lines are this Those creatures jumped the barricades and have headed for the sea. She began to breathe, to breathe at the thought of such freedom, stood and whispered to her child, Belong. She held the child and whispered with calm, calm, Belong. So there's this eerie sense that these lines have in the context that Kiernan provides and in in the narrator's head, but there's also a sense of peace with this decision in the context of the song. So there's a great dichotomy at play there. The next allusion is, what is that noise? What is the wind doing? This is from T.S. Eliot's the Wasteland. It's in the second section called A Game of Chess. Some of the following lines are, you know nothing, do you see nothing, do you remember nothing? And in this moment in the text, the narrator is thinking about a conversation he had with Jacoba where he admitted that he remembers no Spanish. And so his mind is just a muddle. He's just full of passing thoughts and references. The following illusion is this, the sea has many voices, many gods, and many voices. This is from... Dry Salvages. This is from the Four Quartets in the poem, The Dry Salvages. I wish I could read the whole poem here because it's excellent. There's really nothing I can say to put these lines in context because the whole poem works uniformly. Needless to say that it is a poem that is really relevant to this text. It's interested in marine life, in the power of water, the curiosity it holds for us, the ideas of gods and power uh, that it evokes in us and the And the destructive forces that it harnesses. And all of these thoughts, as we've said, flow in and out of the narrator's brain as he's trying to focus and triangulate his thoughts about the work that he has to do. And to me, this is just brilliant stuff.
0: Maybe there's an entire bonus episode that we need to do about Caitlin Kiernan and T.S. Eliot. I mean, maybe we should get some more stories under our belt first, but (laughs) I don't know. That would be an amazing special topic episode to, to do. Maybe that's an episode someone will commission us to do at some point. Well, let's move on to chapter two now. This chapter gives us the the meat cute moment here in this rom horror story that we are uh, <laughs> we're reading. Uh, I probably haven't coined that, but I feel like I have. Uh, definitely a rom horror story here. So we're going to learn something of the backstory of Jacoba Angevine and and also the backstory of the the narrator. We've been talking already. The, the narrator is a reporter. He's a freelance re- reporter. But it turns out he's, he's a fairly serious business reporter who travels internationally to write really big stories. And that's how he comes to be in Monterey to begin with. He'd just gotten back to the States and he needed someplace to, to crash and to recover for a while from his recent assignment. And a, a friend of his who is a freelance photographer gave him his apartment in Monterey while he himself was away on assignment in Japan. And so that's the, the setup. And, and this whole thing here, the way that Kieran and does this, this filled me with nostalgia for a world that just doesn't exist anymore. We're going to talk about that in a minute. So the narrator is in Monterey. He's here really just to take some time off. And there are only a few things to do in Monterey. So naturally, he goes to the Monterey Bay Aquarium, which is a a really world-class aquarium. It also features heavily in Star Trek IV, the one with the whales. So it's a great place to spend a day if you're in the area. And that is exactly what the narrator does. And while he is there, he meets Jacoba Angevine, who is sitting on a bench in front of the kelp forest exhibit, which is something that this particular aquarium is really famous for. And he recognizes her because it turns out that she's famous or at least a little bit famous. So uh, let's get that backstory and then we'll we'll pause to digest all of this. Jacoba was formerly a professor of something at UC Berkeley, but she was fired because of a controversial book that she published, a, a book called Waking Leviathan. And we're never going to find out specifically what this book is about, but we do get some hints. Uh, the first is that a reviewer for the journal Nature, which is one of the most prestigious science journals out there, uh, this reviewer called the book the most confused and preposterous example of bad history wedding bad science since the Velikovsky affair. Uh, Brandon's going to explicate that for us in just a moment. After she lost her professorship at Berkeley, and, and she must have only then been an assistant professor or, or maybe in some sort of post-grad position in order to have been fired like this. Uh, but after that, at any rate, she, she wrote an article that was published in the magazine Fate, which is a big deal among people who are interested in the the paranormal. Uh, and in fact, it was founded by Raymond Palmer, who was also the editor of the SF magazine Amazing Stories, where some of the works that we cover on this show on Elderside were published. This article that she wrote was about Inuit archaeology. So I don't know, maybe she was an archaeologist, but what I think really matters here is that Inuit culture features in Lovecraft's most famous story as well, right? It, this is a feature in The Call of Cthulhu, where an anthropologist at Princeton has discovered the Cthulhu cult being practiced among a remote community of Inuit. And that is not the only connection between this story and Lovecraft's sea stories. We talked about that at the top of the show, but I will remind us that we should be thinking about Dagon and Innsmouth here as well. But at any rate, the narrator after this meet-cute looks into Jacoba Angevine and, and discovers that she's become part of the, the murky, strident world of fringe believers and UFO buffs, conspiracy theorists, and paranormal investigators, which is a lot. And this just cues me into the fact that we are in for a ride here.
1: Right. We are deep in Lovecraft territory at this point. And Kiernan never mentions Lovecraft in the story, though she does mention other writers of strange tales and weird fiction. Also, she mixes in real-world paranormal investigation and advocacy sites like Whitley Stryber's Unknown Country. Uh, Whitley Stryber is a horror writer who's also heavily involved in what the journalist and narrator calls, as you just read, Glenn, but I want to read it too because I love this phrase, <laughs> the murky strident world of fringe believers in UFO buffs, conspiracy theorists, and paranormal and paranormal investigators. Uh, to me, it's just too bad that Kiernan didn't mention Coast-to- Coast AM, but you know, every story has its imperfections, <laughs> I suppose. Uh, but there's still a lot more going on here. I mentioned at the top of the show that Kieran is doing some hard-boiled tropes here, but now she's doing a kind of Hemingway and expatriate bit in this section. Our narrator has returned from Pakistan, where he was investigating corruption bombings, uh, Pakistan's uranium enrichment programs, and that program's ties to North Korea, Libya, and Iran. Uh, And just who were the customers of said uranium enrichment program, if it was going on at all? Uh, Lots of geopolitics and rumblings of war, and Middle Eastern conflicts, and Pakistani presidents and scientists. This is a rough gig. I mean, all of this is taking place in the post-9/11 terrorism anxieties and global war on terror, uh, that investigative journalists were trying to actually track down what is going on, why is America going to war in this section of the world and such a large scare and such a large scale war as well? And, and all he wants to do is forget about all of this for a while. He, he said his head is full of you know like Urdu mythology and poems and all this stuff. As he puts it, he wants to rid his mind of everything except scotch and the smell of the sea. That's
0: <laughs> fantastic writing. All of this is really just one paragraph in this story as well, but it is so dense and so rich and and so evocative. And this point's a a portrait of a very specific time between 9-11 and the 2008 crash of the economy. Uh, That's also uh, also the time during which you and I met, Brandon, so I've got a lot of nostalgia for this period. But in particular, just thinking about the whole setup of this story, uh, hinging on a really successful, really important freelance reporter who is able to be paid to travel to other countries, stay there for a long time and do real hardcore, serious business, investigative journalism at great expense to the news outlet that he's writing for and at something that must be providing him with a middle class or even upper middle class income to, to do this. And that world is just gone now. That world no longer exists. Journalists do not get to do this anymore. Uh, newspapers, news magazines don't have the budgets to send people to do this. And journalism is largely, as far as I can tell, mostly become people reporting what other people are writing on Twitter. And this filled me for a lot of nostalgia, but also a lot of sadness for this world that's been, been lost. That type of stuff is just not around anymore. And may, maybe
1: it is, and I, I don't know how to seek it out. But you're right to point out that that world is, is largely gone. That kind of hard-hitting, in-depth journalism, the eight to 12,000-word pieces, they don't exist. People don't maybe have the
0: patience for them, or they don't get enough clicks on uh, the websites. And that, that's a real shame and neither of us are reporters we're not we're certainly not bemoaning the the loss of our own industry here but this is something that definitely affects what fiction writers are doing as well so many of the the writers that we cover on this show or just writers in general have been able to write fiction because they've also been able to make a living or at least supplement their income by working as freelance reporters at some point or another. Hemingway, we've invoked here already, did that, of course, famously. Algernon Blackwood did this as well. Algernon Blackwood's whole deal was that he had these amazing life experiences as a reporter in New York and in Canada and elsewhere in the world, and these things fed into his weird fiction. And that's just one example. So many of the writers we talk about on this show lived a life like this, where being paid, being able to, to count on selling a news article or an editorial piece to a news outlet, whether a newspaper or some kind of magazine, enabled them to have the luxury to take a few days to write a really awesome weird fiction short story. And, uh, that, the, and the death of these outlets for writers has transformed what fiction writing is in our world as well. Absolutely.
1: Th- there are a few more things going on in this section that I want to touch on. I really want to focus on the terrible review of <laughs> Jacob Anjamin's book, <laughs> By Nature. Uh, this They mention the Velikovsky affair. That's a phrase that may have been coined by Carl Sagan in the TV show Cosmos that he did. Uh, but really what they mean is the book Worlds in Collision by Emanuel Velikovsky. This is a book that was published in 1950. Uh, I have not read it. I could only get kind of get an abstract of it, but the book seems to be an attempt to explain the development of mythology starting in the 15th century BCE uh, by way of a near collision between Earth and a large comet that totally changed everything about Earth's orbit and axis, so that at this point in history, this uh, near- Collision with this comet caused widespread catastrophes that led to the need for explanations of said catastrophes and the development of religion and mythology. Uh, it's basically an attempt to use comparative mythology to make a, a scientific claim. So, this book uh, was, though popular, was pretty widely reviled and dismissed by academics all around. And we'll have other examples of writers in this vein whose uh, works became popular, though they have no scientific background. Uh, And I want to save those reveals for later. But I think that we're supposed to get from this, that Angevine's book, Waking Leviathans, is some kind of pseudoscientific or uh, folklore or comparative folklore mythology attempt to explain underwater monsters and maybe the myths of Poseidon. Also, maybe mermaids, sirens, krakens, who knows? Uh, But it's likely she's seeking some kind of uh, science or scientific reality or material reality behind the folktales and urban legends. And it's not interested in debunking the myths, but is rather using pseudoscience to back up claims of the existence of these things. Maybe the marks on her back, her scars have something to do with her interest in this topic. One thing I want to do in the discussion, Glenn, is uh, talk about what we really think the content of this book is.
0: Yes, I'm very excited for that. I mean, one of the things I say all the time on our shows is how excited I get about fictional books, about books that exist only within the fictions that we're reading, and how much I wish they were real. That I just sort of yearn to discover that secretly the writer of our story has also gone and written the fictional book, and I want to get my hands on that. I suspect I suspect it doesn't exist here in this case, but uh, but I can still I can still dream. I have read this Velikovsky book. There are actually a number of Velikovsky books, but the this but, but this one that you mentioned is the, the big one. this is something that my childhood public library had. and so I read this book in middle school. I was reading a lot of this sort of thing in middle school. Uh, we're gonna get some re- we're gonna get a reference later in this book to uh, Von Daniken, who was uh, someone I totally was in love with in middle school. <laughs> but this book by Velikovsky, it's I mean, it's a crazy book. No one would think that any of his n- no one no one gives any credence to anything that he argues here. But what he's trying to explain is what's called the Bronze Age Collapse, which is this collapse of civilization all around the the Mediterranean and Levantine world around the year 1300 BC uh, dates on exactly when this gets started and when it ends will vary depending on archaeology. I think we place it closer to 13 or, or 1200 BC now, but uh, when Velikovsky was writing, it was it was dated a little bit earlier than that. That we, we don't need to go into the the archae we don't need to go into the archaeological or geological details about why we have shifted that a little bit. But this is something that we see well documented in. Uh, ancient Greece uh, on Crete we see it in Egypt we see it in uh we see it in the, the Holy Land, and we see it in Mesopotamia. We see it everywhere that we can in the uh, Near East and in the, the Mediterranean world. And the question is, why did this happen? Why suddenly was there a massive decline in population? Why did the economy, uh, in terms of manufacturing and construction, disappear for a long time? And what happened? And why did cultures go through massive transformation in terms of, of language and literature and artistic representation all over? The This part of the world at this time. And there are really interesting things that we get in some of the narratives of this happening that include references to people called sea people. This is a phrase that we get in several different cultures, several different languages, and we don't really understand who these sea people are. And this is certainly amazing fodder for weird fiction, right? I mean, we think we tend to assume that there are some invaders who are coming from somewhere else in the Mediterranean, like spain or italy or something like that but i don't know sea people could mean tentacles too right like why not right that sounds pretty awesome yeah i mean
1: octopuses really scare me and so (laughs) i could just imagine uh, them like kind of coming out of the water on their uh, with their rounded heads and their tentacles and walking on them uh and and calling that a sea person if i had never seen anything like that before it wasn't really (laughs) aware
0: of why it should be on land uh yeah great fodder for weird fiction Again, this sort of thing would be an amazing episode to do as well. I would love to go back and read this book and just chat with you uh, uh, about it, especially now, you know, especially since the last time I read this, you know, I didn't know ancient languages. I didn't I hadn't didn't have any graduate training in history and that sort of thing. I do have those things now. It would be a lot of fun to go back and revisit these things that really lit my imagination on fire as a young adolescent. But let's uh, let's move on here. Let's uh, let's go ahead and do chapter three. Uh, this chapter opens with some details about the narrator's current life. Uh, he's in a bad way. He's living in a motel room, and he's uh, mostly just getting drunk on whiskey. He's meant to be writing a story about Jacoba Angevine. He's been commissioned to do this because he's a freelance reporter who also had a romantic relationship with the leader of a suicide cult. So he's the ideal person to write this story, at least from an editor's business perspective. But he's finding it hard to do. And what we're reading now is really his free writing attempt to find a way to tell the story because he does really need the money, because whiskey's not free. The core of this chapter, though, is about the videotape. Uh, By the end of this chapter, we still don't know how this videotape connects with the suicide cult. Uh, That's actually going to be the final revelation at the end of the story. But what we do get in this chapter is some pretty classic weird fiction awesomeness. The video in question comes from a a remote control submarine that was exploring Monterey Canyon for the uh, Aquarium's Research Institute. Uh, We'll talk about the canyon when we pause. Uh, There are three different versions of this video. One of them elicits it's the full video, which the institute does not. Want out in the public. But the narrator has gotten a copy of this from a robotics technician for the, the project, a robotics technician who works on this project in some capacity, which the narrator bought for $2,000. And what makes this copy different is that it is complete. It doesn't cut off the last 12 seconds. And, and that's what we'll finally see later in the story is these last 12 seconds of footage. But for now, the deal is this. The remote submarine was exploring the canyon when it found a, a wide, flat rock that is now referred to as as the Delta Stone. And this is a a stone that is strangely free from any kind of silt or debris. But more importantly, it has a symbol carved on it, uh, maybe even a a letter. And the whole thing is new. It looks like it was done yesterday. So who made it? And who put it here at the bottom of the ocean? And why? Uh, But that's not the whole story, because just as the camera picks this up, the, the sub is hit by something maybe it's even attacked and it loses one of its cameras and and for 12 seconds there's just this darkness before the the camera picks something up again and what that something is is going to have to wait until later
1: and what startling info we'll get when the reveal is made <laughs> uh, there's quite a lot here about the canyon I just want to point out, uh, again, another instance where I really want to encourage our listeners to read this story. Kiernan's descriptions of underwater exploration and the sights they see are truly beautiful. Um, The narrator in his head hears Jakova explain what makes up marine snow. It's presented to us as though it's a quote. Uh, and this includes interplanetary dust particles into the mix, along with detritus and plankton and stuff like that. Djokova never said anything like that, but it really becomes clear to me that the narrator has r- deeply internalized Djokova's voice. Essentially, though, what we're talking about with the Monterey C- uh, Canyon, which is about 95 miles off the coast of uh, Monterey Bay, and it's deep, it's a mile deep, it's about as big as the Grand Canyon. It's about 200 miles long. They missed, the investigators, the research institute that's been exploring the canyon with these remotely operated vehicles, missed this abyss that just opened up down there. It wasn't on any of the charts. This is what the chief pilot for the remotely operated vehicle said about this odd space in the canyon. She said this, that drop off wasn't on any of the charts. We'd always missed it somehow. I know that isn't a very satisfying answer, but it's a big place down there. The canyon is over two hundred miles long. You miss things. So that's true. It's 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 really big canyon. It's a massive. It's almost. It's a. I think it's become an underwater park in in some ways. At least in terms of conservation and protection. Um, but this statement made after the censored version of the tape was first made the news, uh, seems a little cover y to me. Maybe I shouldn't be suspicious that this wasn't discovered because you have a small re- remotely pi- remotely operated vehicle, but we have a lot of technology that can sound the depths of any area in the water. We can explore things through sonar and radar. It's strange to me that this wasn't picked up So I am suspicious.
0: Also, I'm keyed in to be suspicious because of how good a writer Tiernan is. It's really interesting to me that you jumped to conspiracy, to the Institute actually knowing about this and and hiding it. And I didn't, that that was not what I thought was maybe going on in the subtext here, though I actually think that's more defensible in the text. I went to the question of, was it really not here before this day or, or relatively recently that this... That this abyss here in the canyon is is new, that something geological has happened. And I guess that I went there because that's what happens in Lovecraft's story, Dagon, where we get something similar, where we get something underwater that is an artifact that's been made by an intelligent person person or intelligent people that has carvings on it in a, a language that no one has ever seen before, in an iconography that no one has ever seen before, that the narrator of that story encounters above the surface of the water only because there's been a recent earthquake or or recent volcanic activity that has uh, pushed it up from the bottom of the ocean, has created a sort of new island that he gets stranded on. We should say, by the way, we've covered Dagon. You and I have done Dagon. It's one that we did on Patreon. It's not one that we ever aired here on on the, the free show. But if people are interested, they can check that out on Patreon. But because it had that parallel, or at least evoked that connection to me, I was wondering if there wasn't something seismic that had happened recently. But Kiernan doesn't ever say that. She doesn't really set that up in any way, the way that she does actually set up the fact that the Institute is clearly trying to prevent some information about this and about Jacoba Angevine from getting out into the public. So conspiracy maybe is more what's happening here.
1: I guess what you just described is the element that felt most cover-uppy to me or conspiracy uh, or related to conspiracies. I don't think I have any way to gauge (laughs) whether or not this abyss was something that was covered up or any reason to believe why it would. Though later on in the story, we'll we'll get a sense that Jacoba believed this was once an ancient site. I want to talk about the stone, why it's called the Delta Stone. The symbol carved into that stone looks like a lowercase d. And the narrator points out that the presence of this stone, the fact that it is clearly hand-carved or not naturally occurring, not a naturally occurring feature of some rock. Uh, This fact is far more credible than other strange things we've seen come from photos from outer space, like the face on Mars or anything Eric Von Daniken has has put out in terms of the relationships (laughs) between Mayan artifacts and ancient aliens. Von Daniken is, of course, famous for his articulation of the ancient alien theory, which is found in the book Charity of the Gods. Uh, But this is another great example of Kiernan's writing, where she's hinting at the sort of stuff that might be found in Waking Leviathans. And we, the audience, get to have an imaginary book full of strange artifacts and the potential existence of some kind of civilization or conscious life under the sea. It's fantastic. And I should note that the reason why this Delta Stone, the fact of its being not naturally occurring uh, or just a play of light or a trick of photography uh is is that this tape has gotten out it's been investigated the pilots of these crafts everybody who's caught up in this investigation of the canyon and the abyss seems to be in agreement that this is uh, uh an artifact a, a hand carved symbol um, and and this to me is an example of you know, in terms of conspiracy theories, letting a little truth out so that the whole truth can be uh, avoided so that you can hide other
0: bigger things. We might even be able to combine this with this other thing that I pointed out earlier, which is the emphasis that Kiernan is placing on brand names in this story. We might think about all of the institutions that shape the world that we live in, which includes these corporations, these sort of corporate brands that she's emphasizing all the time, but also government, uh, but then also even these smaller academic institutions. And and certainly the backstory of Jacoba Angevin is a, a an unhappy ending, an unhappy divorce from an academic institution, which is also what the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute is as well. That's not something I think I really appreciated until you really started spelling all of this out for me, Brandon. So uh, I'm looking forward to, I don't know, checking in with us as we go. Uh, We are not even quite halfway through this story at this point, so let's get into chapter four, which opens with the the narrator's attempt to write the piece as a journalist would. He describes Jacoba's childhood and her family, and he uses her father's career as a novelist as a unique gateway into who she is or who she was and, and what happened. And here we we get some names, and and actually we're going to get a ton of names in this chapter, but right now we get the name of the cult. It was called The Open Door of Night, and they committed suicide by mass drowning. I think that we'd inferred already, but we get it explicit here. But this chapter is chiefly about how reading the the mystery and suspense novels that Jacoba's father wrote, uh, about how doing that can tell us something about what went wrong with her, about how she wound up leading people to drown themselves in the ocean, and there is some setup for this, which is that there have already been a number of books about Jacoba, but none of them have paid any attention to her father's novels, while our narrator has read them all. And so this is going to give him a new angle for his piece, which is a good scholarly move. I might even actually start using this example in class to, to, <laughs> to show students what scholars do, which is find a new way to, to write about this, a, a new way to, to think about this, new questions to ask. But what this really means is that Kiernan is able to lean hard into this classic Lovecraftian trope that we've already had. Uh, the made-up book. Here is where she actually has written some of the made-up books. We get the made-up mystery novels of Theo Angevin, and we also get the the made-up journalist books about the, the mass suicide. And Kiernan even includes the publication information for these books, which is really awesome. I spent a lot of time as a teenager thinking the Necronomicon was real, and then spent a lot of time trying to find a copy. But with the level of detail that Kiernan provides, this is essentially a hoax, and it would be An insanely fun prank to play on a librarian. If you happen to have a librarian (laughs) friend is to bring all of this publication information to that librarian. I mean, there's no ISBN here, uh, no international standard book number, but we have everything else. So you could fulfill, you could fill out an ILL, an interlibrary loan request here with this imaginary Book and uh, uh, you know just prank your librarian friend. I don't actually recommend doing this, but
1: you know. No, it's it's also a great uh, kind of writing prompt for somebody to uh, request a, an imaginary book, and then
0: what happens if they get a copy? You know, what, what would that what would be what would that what would that indicate? Oh yeah, th- I mean that's a Borges story for the digital age for sure. I would love to read that story. So if someone wants to write that, I mean maybe we should write our own versions. But if listeners want to write that too, uh, please come to the forum and uh, and share those with us. But, but let's get into these these novels here. Let's talk about Theo Angevin's novels, because this chapter is mostly excerpts from them. This is a real accomplishment, by the way, to write these excerpts in a totally distinct voice from the, the main narrative. There are three of them. Uh, they span about three pages. There's a good chunk of the, the whole novella. I am tempted to just read them all into the microphone because I love them, but, but I, I won't do that. Two of these seem to be hard-boiled novels. One of them is maybe more of a a psychological thriller, but they all feature someone with a a possibly numinous connection to the sea, right? Something supernatural is maybe going on in each of these stories. In one, uh, a man is terrified of the ocean. He has dreams about it. And last night he dreamed about people marching into the sea, which is exactly what Jakova and her cult did. And these dreams, having dreams of the, the ocean, this is a very important topos, very important motif in Lovecraft. Uh, in another of these books, it's a, a woman who has dreams of the sea, uh, but her dreams are of mermaids and of ruined castles beneath the waves and beautiful drowned girls with seaweed tangled in their hair. And then finally, we get a story about a dude who fishes for Marlin by tossing gold coins into the ocean. But these aren't just any coins. These are coins that have a squid or an octopus on one side and then a star, like a pentagram on the other. And as he tosses these coins into the ocean, he mumbles something under his breath. And what he's mumbling is a prayer to Mama Hydra. And the thing is, this dude caught a lot of fish this way. Every time he dropped a coin in and said this prayer, he'd catch a fish. Uh, and of course, we should point out here as well that Mother Hydra is a part of the Dagon cult, as uh, we come to know it in The the Shadow Over Innsmouth, which is my favorite of Lovecraft's big novellas. But of course, the question is, right, what's the relationship between this Dagon cult stuff, the Cthulhu dreams, and Jacoba's suicide cult?
1: That's definitely something we're going to take up in the discussion when we talk about Jacoba's origin story, which is the big kind of reveal of this text. And we're going to get more explicit connections to Lovecraft as well in just a little bit. So I don't want to dive too deep into that right now. I will come back to the question you just posed in just a sec. But I do want to point out that in this section, we also get uh, another clue to the narrator's own life. He says he basically bungled a story. He's in hot water with his editor. Like, this Is his last chance. His ability to do a good journalistic piece, an expose, a profile on Jakova is kind of his last chance to stay in the business because he bungled this story on um, Musharraf, who was a Pakistani general who became the president of Pakistan from 2001 to 2008. So, really, in the core time of the war on terror. And Musharraf won the presidency after a successful coup d'etat in 1999. And we already know that the narrator has been trying through his journalistic career up to this point that maybe he's failed to explain the rise of terrorist organizations in post 9-11 and how they're tied to state governments. Or maybe he's been trying to tie these organizations to state governments in some way. Uh, And and he's kind of barking up the wrong tree, or maybe the right one, or he can't get the story together. Uh, He's just a mess. And this goes back to the project he was on prior to even meeting Jacoba Angevine. And, and certainly meeting her has changed his life in a significant way. But I want to go back to the section of the story and all of these detective novels or thrillers. I, I love this section of the story. I think if I had written this story, this would have been one of the most fun bits to write. Kiernan gets to write a few hard detective books in the <laughs> middle of a novella. And what's so fascinating to me about this section is that it demonstrates a psychological concept that is peppered throughout this story. And, and it's also with the illusions. Uh, this concept is called the frequency illusion. Sometimes it's called the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon. And it's a name for a uh, mental phenomenon or phenomenon of the mind, where once you're exposed to something new, like a new idea or a new word or a new concept or whatever, you begin to see it everywhere. It pops up more frequently because of your awareness of it. And we see this in the text where the narrator is seeing references to the sea or the events of the doomsday cult or the underwater creatures or whatever, everywhere, and is trying to use them to find meaning in the trauma or a pattern in the trauma that he experienced. The frequency illusion is a form of cognitive bias, so it doesn't really have any rational, explanatory power. But what it does do instead is highlight examples of things your brain is noodling over in the material world. In other words, we see what we're looking for, even if we don't know what we're looking for. We find it in the world. And this is very deft, I think, of Kiernan to use To use something like this phenomenon in the story, because it effectively demonstrates the narrator's attempts to make meaning and connections in the world, to find patterns, to find examples of maybe people knew about this and and they didn't do anything, to to look for those things through art and music and literature and poetry, where perhaps no meaning can be found in those cases. I, I think it's fantastic. I also just love the pastiche of this section as well.
0: The way that Kiernan is depicting the narrator here really is awesome. This is a fantastic example of of showing, not telling, even as this is a first person narrative and it is a story that is being told and the beauty of it is the voice of the character. She is showing us how broken and damaged the character has been by this event that he is dancing around, that he won't really tell us about, right? The absence of the telling us of the chief thing that he's supposed to be telling us, the thing that we're here for is a type of... Of, of showing and it is brilliant craft here. absolutely love it and I, I think that really is, is and I think in this section that really comes to the the fore. And one more thing that the narrator
1: is looking for in terms of explanatory power is when did Jakova's obsession with all this stuff begin? And he's looking to the novels of her father, which he has all the copies of, Uh, I mean, a copy of each book of the 17 novels, and is maybe trying to wonder if this is some part of her childhood, though it's not clear she had a really good relationship with his father or his novels. So we're still left with this real sense of mystery with a tenuous connection and a grasping for explanations. And it's, it's just great writing
0: and because we're in a weird fiction story there are layers of, of what's real and and what's not I, I don't mean layers of subjectivity but i mean layers of hey are monsters real right hey is, is numinous magical stuff real so you know if this were a if this were something that we were reading in a, a newspaper here in our world we would have to make the connection between the the books written by the dad and then the cult led by the daughter as having something to do with their relationship, having something to do with the influence of those books on Jacoba. But here, I think we get to ask the question of, but what's Theo Angevin's relationship with this stuff, with this material? Why is he putting this stuff in his book? Does he know something about the Dagon cult, right? If the Dagon cult is real in this world, is he a part of it? Does he know something real here? Did he raise Jacoba in this cult as as well? All right. That's a question that I think we have to be asking. Absolutely, and what does REM have to do with any of this? <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> how much the, did they know? <laughs> that's the real conspiracy. <laughs> it's all Michael Stipe. <laughs> he's the uh, he's the chief priest of the uh, the Order of Dagon. he's he's the head priest of the esoteric Order of Dagon for for sure. I don't know. We might I actually so. be able to get sued. We might be able to get sued for that. So I might cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, let's get into Chapter Five, which is the uh, the longest chapter of the novella, and it, it's the real crux of the story as well. The narrator has been mixing scotch and tequila, which is definitely not something that I recommend. It's not something anyone recommends, I don't think. But he's done it. He's drunk. Yet this still is part of the story that we're going to want to pay attention to, he tells us. It's the ghost story within the ghost story within the ghost story. The narrator wants to go see the the warehouse again, the warehouse that had become the the temple of half-remembered gods. Uh, That's how he thinks of it. It's been five months, and so the police tape is finally gone, but the building is fenced in with a big for sale sign and an even bigger no trespassing sign. It's broad daylight, but no one is around, and so the narrator slips behind the fence and finds a way into the building. And as he's breaking in, the narrator remembers the one time that he came here when it was a temple, and specifically, he's thinking about the thing he saw on the altar. We don't get any description of this thing at this point, but it is some kind of statue. It's it's an icon of some sort. It's very old, and when he asks Jakova about its provenance, that's all she said. It's very old, doesn't really matter who made it, so much as that it was made. The narrator describes it as hideous, and and it is, Jakova admits, but the crucifixion is also hideous. So are bleeding statues of the Virgin Mary, images of Kali, the animal-headed gods of the Egyptians. She says, the divine is always abominable. In the building, now, he makes his way to the large room that had been the center of the, the temple. It's all been painted over, but before the mass suicide, the floor had been covered by a a yantra, a a mystical diagram. Uh, But here's how Kiernan describes it. A a writhing, tangled mass of sea creatures straining for a distant black sun. Hindi and Mayan and Chinook symbols. The precise contour lines of a topographic map of Monterey Canyon. Each of these things, and all of these things, simultaneously. And Jakova thought that this would form a bridge, a conduit. But a bridge to where? The, The narrator doesn't tell us. Sorry, this has been a, a long chapter, but we've only got one more scene to do. And it, it's a great scene, a really terrifying scene. This is the real horror moment of the, the story, or at least the first real horror moment of the story. As the narrator is walking around the hallways of the abandoned warehouse, he encounters a little girl in the dark. And look, we've all seen this movie. We know this jump scare, <laughs> but Kiernan does this pretty effectively nonetheless. And, and now I guess because we've seen a movie before, right? We know that this is something numinous. We know this is going to turn out to be something supernatural, but the narrator doesn't know that. And and even when the little girl says things like, The gates are shut now. They won't open again for you or anyone else. And I waited as long as I dared. It it still takes the narrator a minute to realize that this is a ghost or a vision or or, or you know something else of Jacoba as a, a little girl. But she knows the narrator and she's talking to him as if she is the adult Jacoba. And she goes on to say that all the answers were here in this warehouse the whole time. Everything he's been wondering, the the things that are keeping him awake and the things that are driving him insane, she offered all of it to him. Now there's a a sound like water breaking against stone and something heavy and soft and wet dragging itself across the concrete floor. This reminds him again of the the thing on the altar. And finally, we get a a description of it and he, he calls it Mother Hydra. It was, and I'm quoting here, it was a corrupt and bloated Madonna of the abyss, its tentacles and anemone tendrils and black bulging squid eyes, the tube and proboscis snaking from one of the holes where its face should have been. Uh, and then he remembers the prayer that goes with it. And again, I'm quoting, mighty undying daughter of Defion, and serpentine Echidna, Hydra Lernaya, gluttonous whore of all the lightless worlds, bitch bride and concubine of Father Dagon, Father Kraken. And then he smells rot and mud salt water and dying fish. And this little girl who is Jacoba says, you have to go now. You are a splinter in my soul always. And she would drag you down to finish my own darkness. And and then the little girl is gone and the other sounds and odors are gone with her. And that is the end of this chapter. This last scene was terrifying. I think it's the first really scary thing that we've ever read on Elder Sign. And I have to say, Brandon, that even though I'm prepared for this, right, I've outlined this story, I've read it several times, I've thought about it, my heart rate went up. (laughs) Again, just recapping this. It
1: really is a chilling moment. And apart from Dipping raw hot dogs and mayonnaise and eating them. <laughs> this is the scariest thing we've encountered on Elder Sign. This chapter is full of uncanniness and, and making strange. It's also where we see the most densely packed collection of brand names, all of which are described in terms of you know litter that people create from eating fast food. This is terrifying. I, I want us to just focus for a minute before I really go into this section on the child Jakova here on the connection to this mother Hydra, on the fact that uh, the child Jakova says that the narrator is a splinter in her soul, this dragging down into darkness. I don't know if we're meant to feel regret here or remorse or that Jakova's made the wrong choice, that her beliefs were caught up in the wrong stuff, that these are demon gods in some way. Uh, These are things I want us to remember because uh, the child Jakova is uh, important, To the resolution of this story. And when we get to the discussion, I just want us to have these things in mind. But at the beginning of the section, we're still caught up with the narrator trying to make sense of all of these events that have come to define him, that have come to define his life. He's, He's kind of living like he's undead, like life has moved on without him. And he's still caught in this moment of Jacoba's death, of her suicide cult. It's a great exploration of trauma, but everything is caught up with Jakova for the narrator. He thinks about William Burroughs, who wrote that language is a virus for matter, space, and then he thinks, if that's the case, then what is Jakova? He quotes Velikovsky here, and I'm going to read this because it might shine some light on Jakova's book. And Velikovsky writes, "Human beings, rising from some catastrophe, bereft of memory of what had happened, regarded themselves as created from the dust of the earth. All knowledge about the ancestors." who they were, and in what interstellar space they lived, was wiped away from the memory of a few survivors. Apart from Velikovsky and von Tanikin, who you know, we've discussed use kind of a rogue version of social science and critical theory uh, to come up with their own theories, scientific theories, pseudoscientific theories, the narrator throws Joseph Campbell into the mix as well. Uh, Joseph Campbell is, of course, famous for the hero of A Thousand Faces and other texts that are really works of comparative mythology uh, and comparative ancient literature and folklore. The narrator attributes the following quote to Campbell here. Kiernan has the narrator say this, uh, Joseph Campbell wrote, draw a circle around a stone and that stone will become an incarnation of mystery. Something like that. Or it was someone else who said it and I'm misremembering. I had a really hard time tracking down this quote and the only thing close to it that I could find, you know, using open source research, is Caitlin Kiernan using it in another novel that she's written. Uh, and I suspect that if this quote did come from any Joseph Campbell work, it would have come from the book Goddesses. But I can't verify that. I was I was unable to find the source of this quote.
0: I love the combination of Joseph Campbell, Eric Von Daniken, and uh, Emmanuel Velikovsky here. Uh, I I mentioned earlier that I read Velikovsky as a a, a young adolescent and Von Daniken as well, but Joseph Campbell was in that mix. And these were all books I was reading at the exact same time. I was reading them all in seventh grade. I had gotten them all from our public library, and I actually had bought the Von Daniken book, Chariot of the Gods, and then like five sequels to that book as well. And then also uh, a, a copy of Joseph Campbell's The Hero with a Thousand Faces that the library was Discarding. I think I paid a quarter for uh, each mass market. And that was, you know, that was a fortune for me. I spent, a, you know, two months' allowance or something on acquiring these books. But they really defined seventh grade and eighth grade for me as well. I mean, really, seventh grade, eighth grade. I was I was into some other uh, I was into some other uh, fringe academic stuff by the by the time eighth <laughs> grade rolled around. Maybe we'll talk about that at some point on the on the show. But I love the way that Kiernan has jumbled all of these together as well. It's as if she's somehow saw what I was up to in seventh grade and then crafted, uh, which is also around the time that I was getting into to Lovecraft and Poe as well, and crafted a story about what. Seventh grade was like for me. I mean, I don't think that's actually what happened, but it really resonates with me. She certainly
1: captures that sense of awe and maybe that sense of even yearning for wanting these things to be true or believing they're true in a certain moment of life and seeing connections everywhere in the world. And especially, you know, in that stage of adolescence there's so much play caught up with these ideas as well. And she captures that in this story, though it's kind of like a gritty reboot of that period of life. <laughs> well, we've we've already... There's more going on here, uh, just a little bit more that I want to point out. We've brought up Lovecraft a few times already. And I have to say that I love what Kiernan does with uh, something that bothers me about Lovecraft, which is his resorting to saying like the horror was indescribable or something I can't describe happened here. Uh, It was not something that could be seen or uh, understood by human eyes. Kieran does a great job of pointing to that exact sensation, but then giving us the real subjective experience here. And I want to read this paragraph because it is one of the most perfect bits of weird fiction writing I've come across in my opinion. It's maybe the best homage to Lovecraft I've ever read, though she doesn't name him at all anywhere in this story. Kieranin writes this about, you know, the indescribable horror. I took one step towards her then, or maybe two, and stopped. And at that moment, I experienced the sensation or sensations that mystery and horror writers from Poe on down to Theo Anchevine have labored to convey the almost painful prickling. "'as the hairs on the back of my neck "'and along my arms and legs stood erect. "'The cold knot in the pit of my stomach. "'The goose across my grave, "'a loosening in my bowels and bladder, "'the tightening of my scrotum. "'My blood ran cold. "'Drag out all the cliches, "'but there's still nothing that comes within a mile "'of what I felt standing there, "'looking down at that girl, "'her looking up at me, "'the feeble light from the windows "'glinting off her eyes.' this is how you do indescribable horror. Focus it purely on the subjective experience, the material
0: reactions of the body, and let that speak for itself. It's fantastic. Kiernan is a master of introspective writing and, and therefore a master of subjective writing as as well. And I think this is one of the qualities that we really both like about her writing style. I mean, not that we've done a lot of reading of Kiernan yet, though I think it's fair to say that we are definitely gonna do more because we have loved everything that we've read so far. I, I do want to point out that a lot of what's going on. In this section, things that you've been praising Kiernan for are direct allusions to *The Call of Cthulhu*. The way that she describes this icon that the narrator sees on the the altar, for example, is described in very much the way that Lovecraft describes the what what he calls the the horror in clay in the beginning of *The Call of Cthulhu*. And then this line in which the narrator invokes other horror writers to get us to to think about what horror is and to imagine something that is a a trick that Lovecraft also uses at the opening of The Call of Cthulhu, where, uh, among others, he invokes Clark Ashton Smith, for example. So this is a very uh, a very heavy-handed allusion that Kiernan is making to the very beginning of The Call of Cthulhu. But she does it artfully. She does it beautifully. And I think it's really effective, really evocative here.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. I loved this section of the story. And there's just one more or two more quick things I want to say. The narrator has another one of his pop culture asides or <laughs> quotes as his mind flits, to a scene or a line from the film, To Have and Have Not, uh, a film from 1947, uh, which includes the quote, Was You Ever Bit by a Dead Bee? The fu- This film is loosely based on a Hemingway novel, so we have an explicit tie-in to Hemingway here. And finally, Glenn, you pointed out these references to uh, Typhaeon, a uh, child of Kronos, who, with his wife Ekinna, made The Hydra and other monsters. Typhon is often represented as a snake, and there's a big connection here that I have to point out to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast, (laughs) uh, where these figures will pop up in the next decade or so as we get to the works that feature them, Uh, but they're almost always Luciferian, and I think they are for Kiernan as well. Kiernan really drives that point home uh, by having this darkness of the snake figure, the snake imagery, and, and connecting it to these mythical figures and also to Dagon from Lovecraft. So uh, she's doing a great job of kind of conveying the darkness uh, of these mythical figures.
0: There's certainly something that I think we all just inherently find gross uh, and, and often also scary about uh, about things that are slimy and or scaly that are cylindrical right that are long and thin whether it's snakes or like snake necks or or tentacles we really revile at at those images when we're exposed to them, and, and Kiernan deploys, and and Kiernan deploys all of that just deftly here by mixing all of these things up into kind of a I don't know a single arsenal of of scary and and just and maybe disturbing imagery here. It's really brilliant. Well, we've come to chapter six now, which is just three sentences that express that the narrator knows that all of this sounds crazy, but he doesn't care. It's actually fairly funny on the page. It is some much needed levity after the last scene. But we'll just move straight on to to chapter seven here, which is where we are going to learn what is on the videotape that the the narrator simply cannot watch. But first we learn that the robotics technician who sold him this videotape is dead. He was found hanging from a sycamore tree, not far from where the mass suicide happened. His wrists were slashed nearly to the bone. He was wearing a necklace of of squid strung on a wire. the coroner's office has ruled it a suicide because what else can you do with this, right? That's what the narrator says. So let's talk about this tape. The narrator watches it again, and this time he's going to stick with it to the end. He watches as the, the submarine slowly crosses the perfectly clean rocks and boulders with the writing on them. They remind him of fragments of a Greek temple. And then he gets to the end, the, the 12 seconds after the, the darkness. And what he sees is Jacoba Angevin. He sees Jacova Angevin at the bottom of the canyon, looking up at the camera, her eyes black like an anglerfish or a gulper eel, eyes that are matching pools of ink, And something comes out of her mouth. Something darts from her parted lips is how it's described. And that is the end of the tape. And that is creepy. But what really matters is that this tape is from the day before the mass suicide of the open door of Cult. It's from the day before Jacoba led her congregation into the sea to drown. This part of the story reminds me quite a bit of the excellent
1: Navitson report from uh, Mark Z. Zin- from Mark Z. Danielewski's House of Leaves, that might be a fun stretch goal for Patreon at some yes. point to do for the <laughs> podcast someday. But but anyway, this novella shares some commonalities with House of Leaves, and I, and I really appreciate the relative brevity of this story of this story Houses Under the Sea compared to House of Leaves. Uh, let me get back to this story though. Before watching the tape, the narrator laments the fact that he knows he should just move on with his life, that looking back on a catastrophe is to be trapped in the other world. And he thinks of the two examples, maybe two that pop out to him at this point that we have of this kind of looking back in literature. He thinks about Orpheus and and Lot's wife, two characters famous for looking back. And he thinks the classic readings of these sins, the sins of these characters is wrong. The mistake they made wasn't disobeying the god or 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 looking back on the catastrophe. The mistake they made was thinking that they could ever leave the underworld or the catastrophe in the first place. They were always going to carry the mark of their experience with them. There is no leaving this event. There's no getting past it. And this is another great description of the toll that the trauma of these events has taken on the narrator. He's been self-medicating with booze throughout the whole story, and now he's admitting that he's trapped in a, in a psychological hell. I don't have too much more else to say about this story, this bit with Jacoba underwater transformed, or the evil mermaid siren version of her, or whatever's going on, uh, is best left to the end of the story, and maybe even for the discussion to see what's going on.
0: Right. We have come now to chapter eight, the, the last chapter. So I think we may as well just, just press on here. Though this is another long chapter. There are really two parts to this chapter. The The first is more memories and some some newspaper reports. And and it starts with an excerpt from an article in the San Francisco Chronicle about how Jacoba is leading a, a protest against exploration of the Monterey Canyon. Uh, she claims that it's a, a sacred site that is being desecrated. And she compares doing this to robbing Egyptian pyramids. And then there's an article about the mass suicide. Fifty-three bodies were recovered, but it is believed that at least two dozen more may have have died, but their bodies have not been found. The narrator, we learn now, was not in Monterey the day that this happened. He was in New York for work, though when it was actually happening, he was at a bar. So he was able to watch the whole thing on TV because someone filmed it and didn't do anything to stop it from happening. And the narrator now remembers a a sermon that he heard Jacoba give before he left. Uh, I'm just going to quote this. We can't remember where it began, where we began. We can't remember. Of course we can't remember. And they don't want us to even try. They're afraid. And in their fear, they cling desperately to the darkness of their ignorance. They would have us do the same. And then we would never recall the garden nor the gate, would never look upon the faces of the great fathers and mothers who have returned to the deep. And uh, this is something I'm definitely looking forward to unpacking in the discussion. Uh, But we're so close to the end here. So let's just do this very last scene. A grad student in LA is writing a book about the open door of night, and he is meeting with the, the narrator. And I guess he's trying to interview the narrator, but he actually ends up telling a story of his own about something that happened in Jacoba's childhood, something that he's uncovered in his own research. Jacoba's family used to come down to the beach at Monterey every summer. And one year, Jacoba was swimming way out in the ocean and she gets pulled down by a rip current. The lifeguards get her out, but she's not breathing. Uh, The CPR does finally work on her though, but they have to take her to the hospital where she keeps saying that there were mermaids and sea monsters and demons that were trying to pull her down to the bottom of the sea. She's convinced that they're, they're still after her. Uh, And her mother wants to get a psychologist to talk to her, but her father won't let her. Uh, This is a detail that I'm very interested in. Uh, But that's not even the climax of this story within the story. While Jakova is in the hospital, two of the nurses turn up dead in a janitor's closet. And the cause of death was drowning. And it was drowning by salt water. They seemed as if they had drowned in the ocean, even though the hospital is five miles from the coast and they're in a closet in the hospital. And that's the story, except for one brief coda. The narrator closes his eyes and imagines Jacoba coming for him to bring him down to her home at the bottom of the ocean. It's just a fantasy, but he knows that he would go with her and he wishes now that he'd believed her. And that is the end of the story.
1: Right. We get the return of this circle and stone imagery from Joseph Campbell that we saw before that the mark she's left on him is exposing him to this divinity in some sense. And now he has no access to it. We also get a quote from the Beatles about the octopus's garden. (laughs) We would be warm below the storm in our little hideaway beneath the waves. This is his new, maybe ideal place. This is his heaven. He's thinking he'd like to be under the sea and that he's missed his shot and he has to live with that knowledge and he won't ever be able to get the answers he's looking for. In other words, he won't be able to correlate the contents of his mind, so to speak. And now he's stuck with too much truth and and too little to do about it. This story really ends with the perfect air of mystery. Uh, But we'll be able to talk more about what's going on in the story. I do want to say that the ending here, by which I mean Jacoba's origin story, this little mini story, has the real whiff of a changeling story to it, or a fairy story. I mean, we have the circle imagery. You can connect that with fairy stones and portals to another world that are opening up. And all well, of this is fairly important imagery in the story. And I love the way that Kieran has bridged all of these mythologies, or maybe jammed them together as a better description. I just think it works beautifully.
0: Yes, I do too. And we're going to have to talk about what's real, about what are the things that have actually happened. We're going to have to make sense of all of these details when we get to the discussion. Something, uh, something else we might have to do in the future, because I didn't know that Ringo Starr was someone we should be thinking of as a weird fiction writer. So I don't know, maybe we'll do an episode <laughs> on The Beatles as weird fiction writers at, uh, at, at some point. But right now, I am really looking forward to the discussion of this story. I think since we're already thinking
1: about doing the discussion, we should wrap this up. That's going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha, and I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find us and all our other creative projects at ClayTempleMedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums or our new subreddit and let us know what you thought of Houses Under the Sea.
0: And we just want to say thank you one more time to everyone who participated in our review drive. We can't tell you enough how extraordinarily helpful that was for us reaching new people, helping people find our shows. We're so grateful for that. So next time we are going to be back with that discussion episode on this story. We can't wait to do that. But until then, we greet you and say farewell.